Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Gilderoy Lockhart. Today we will be discussing modern-day howlers, fanboys, and Lockhart's disastrous first day of classes. Okay, so David, before we get into the chapter, I have a very important question to ask you. Sure thing. If you had to sort each of the Beatles into one of the four Hogwarts houses, who would you put where? Wow. Um, (laughs) I would put Sir Paul in Ravenclaw, because he was a bit of a musical smarty pants. Hmm. I would put Ringo in Hufflepuff, because he's a complete sweetheart and just really likes everybody. I would put... Uh, John in either Gryffindor or Slytherin because he was really like brave and outlandish, but he was also really ambitious and kind of a jerk sometimes. Although Slytherin isn't the house for jerks, but let's just let's just say that it's the house for jerks. We all know it. Um, and George, I don't know. I guess. So I would probably do what you just did, except instead I would put Paul in Gryffindor and George in Ravenclaw. Okay, why is that? Because I think that Paul is, he's smart, but he's also like kind of bumbling and, but brave in that he's like bold and trying to start new things. And even now he's like still Mm -hmm. trying to do new things and like work with new people. And I think George is more like introverted, but really smart and like actually knows everything. Um that you wouldn't expect, I guess. And Ringo, definitely Hufflepuff. And John, definitely Slytherin, for sure. Okay. Well, with that question settled, why don't we get into what happens in the chapter? So we begin with Ron receiving a howler at breakfast from his mother. And he's very embarrassed by that. And the whole school basically knows that his parents are very ashamed of him. We'll talk more about what a howler is in a minute. Um, But after that, the trio heads to their first class, which is herbology with Professor Sprout. Um, But before they get there, Lockhart kind of accosts Harry on the way before class starts and they have a conversation. Yeah. And then they go to class and they learn about mandrakes, which are going to be a very important sort of plot point later on in this book. Basically screaming baby plants. Yeah. They then go to their next class, Transfiguration, where Ron's wand starts acting up, um, which isn't surprising since we know it just broke in the Whomping Willow. Right. And again, that will be a thing that keeps coming up over and over in this book, which is Ron's wand acting up or backfiring. Um, and then we are introduced to Colin Creevy, who is a first year Gryffindor, who is a big fan of Harry's. And he um, finds Harry in the courtyard and asks Harry to take a picture with him and then to sign it. And Lockhart overhears this conversation and sort of breaks it up and um, again sort of has a discussion with Harry about the trappings of fame and and tries to be paternal. So they actually then walk to Defense Against the Dark Arts with Lockhart, who is their professor, and who assigns them a quiz on himself to begin. Um, Then he sets a bunch of Cornish pixies um, type of creature out into the class. They go crazy. He is incapable of rounding them up himself and ends up fleeing, leaving the job of putting them back in their cages to Harry, Ron, and Hermione. 
So as we just mentioned, the chapter starts with Ron receiving a howler, which is a type of letter in the wizarding world that is comes in a red envelope. And mm-hmm. when you open it, um, so everyone knows that it's a howler when you get the red envelope. And when you open it, um, it basically screams out the words in the letters for everyone to hear probably miles away. Um, when Ron opens his, definitely everyone in the uh, Great Hall can hear very loudly echoing over anything. And... What it's saying is basically Molly saying how angry she is at Ron for taking the car to Hogwarts. Yeah, and bringing shame upon their whole family. She says that Arthur Weasley is now facing an inquiry at work and he might be fired. um, And that everything that has happened is completely his fault and that they're very embarrassed. And Harry, she doesn't mention Harry, but Harry feels really guilty about it. Of course, he should. You know, he shared in the complicity. Yeah, and I know you were saying that you saw a comparison from the Howler to um, putting people on blast on social media. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's kind of a reach. But I, when I was reading the chapter, I sort of was thinking about how in this day and age, a lot of times um, social movements can get started or build momentum by basically calling people out on, on social media, on Twitter, for example, And a lot of times it's basically like a howler in the sense that you're just sort of announcing stuff to the world or at least to whoever wants to view your post. And usually it is public. And a lot of times people will use that as a a way to try to embarrass someone or get them to recant something that they've previously said or call attention to past behavior or in various ways, basically trying to call out things they see as wrong. Um, But it's, you know, it's an incredibly useful tool in some regards and and it's you know in the age of information and misinformation it's a really good way to keep people informed but also misinformed so you know obviously people can lie on social media or mislead or misrepresent things and in some ways i felt like reading about the howler um i felt like i was reading about like a twitter rant or something like that like someone just absolutely putting someone else on blast and just like announcing all their sins to the world for everyone to see and, you know, that that kind of seems like our modern day equivalent to The Howler. I mean, this was written in 1998, 1999, so way before social media existed. But it almost seems sort of predictive of the idea that people really, really like to, like, embarrass people publicly. It's just like a thing now, you know? Yeah, no, well, I think it, it's partly like that. And then I was also just thinking about, like, bullying in general on social media. So not even, like, a you know, social group or something, but like just people being able to post things on people's things or even like hack them or something and then say whatever they want um, that everyone then sees and then you can't get away from it. Yeah. And and it like just like the howler, you know, you can't escape it once it's delivered to you. And it gets worse if you don't acknowledge it, just like it gets worse if you don't open the letter. That's a good analogy. Yeah, that's true. Because we know that if you don't open a howler, it explodes, and then mm-hmm. it tells the message to the world anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you can get away from the result of getting a howler, you know? And yeah. We'll see Hermione get some hate mail howlers in year four, and it seems like there's no legal protections against getting howlers. I don't know if the Ministry of Magic has harassment laws or anything like that, but... Uh, yeah, that's a, interesting. And we see Ron's shame. I mean, Ron should have some shame for what he did, but I think mm-hmm. the idea of sending it in a howler, you know, just the fact that everybody knows and that his family is already, you know, made fun of and kind of shamed in general, I think is really 
Yeah. A sort of hard for him to have this at the beginning of a school year. Yeah, and really, like, um, I understand Mrs. Weasley's frustration and, and her really wanting to hammer the point home, but this sort of, like, public humiliation, I think, is maybe a bridge too far, at least for me. I don't know. Yeah, and she probably just really, you know, it's interesting. It's also, like, a thing where you write an angry email or an angry something post and, like, yeah. you send it quickly. I mean, I wonder, like you know, how fast she wrote that, probably pretty fast since they just got there. So um, maybe, you know, sending out a howler like that is something that wizards do to, you know, that they might regret that they can't take back. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if she ever did apologize to him for that. So there's a fairly important character that gets introduced to us in this chapter. Well, there's a couple, but I would say the more prominent of the pair of them is Colin Creevy who is a first-year Gryffindor now, and he's very small, almost comically so, and he's a big fan of Harry. And we see this because the first interaction that he has with Harry, and therefore the reader, is that he comes up to Harry in the courtyard between classes and asks to take a picture with him. Yes, and he then asks if Harry can sign it, which Harry says no to. Yeah. Um, so the... And the part of this that we'll talk about in a minute is that Lockhart witnesses this and interprets it, you know, in a difficult way for Harry. But I think Khan's character is interesting because um, he is a lot of comedic relief and just, you know, showing also the fame that just generally does exist around Harry because of his status. Mm-hmm. But he um, becomes really important in the plot of this book because he has his camera, which we just saw he used to take a picture with Harry. Um, the camera will become really important when we um, when we get into the basilisk attacks where they're petrified. Um, Colin's camera comes into play there. But um, he also, in, later in the series, is a big part of Dumbledore's army and the resistance later on um, and actually dies in the Battle of Hogwarts um, despite being told to go home because he was underage. And so he just has a really interesting character arc because he goes from this kind of silly fanboy to really joining in with the cause later on. And this is this is our first introduction to him, which is pretty humorous and annoying for Harry. Mm-hmm. But I do want to go back to what, what you said right at the beginning there, which is like it's a representation of how Harry's fame exists in the real world and in the larger wizarding world. And, and I think that's really true. Um, Colin says basically that his parents weren't totally convinced that he should go to Hogwarts when they found out he was a wizard. But then he like had them read all these, you know, books, presumably about historical wizarding society, maybe modern historical wizarding society. And they all mention Harry Potter and the downfall of Voldemort and all this stuff. And, and his whole family, it seems like, are totally fascinated with this Harry Potter mm-hmm. character who mm-hmm. defeated the great evil of the time when he was a baby. Um, it's almost like mythic in that way. And and for Colin's family, like, you know, they're they're like, well, Harry Potter goes to the school. Must so, be good, yeah. Yeah, it must be a great school. And Colin is like literally meeting a living legend. Yeah, and Colin's moment. brother, Dennis, will come in later on in the series and they are kind of comedic together. Yeah, um the but they brothers. You know, you see you, I think that is a good point that you see that um how his family has kind of especially made Harry this uh, legend, but I think, you know, it can be annoying for Harry, but mostly in a positive way for them mm-hmm. to look up to. Yeah, it's definitely like they really, really look up to Harry and they're almost the two most reliable people 
for Harry in the whole series, you know, aside from like Ron and Hermione, but basically it's like you can count on the Creepy Brothers to do anything that you want them to um, because they just adore Harry so much. So now to the titular character of this chapter, we have Gildroy Lockhart. And um, his first interaction with Harry in this chapter is uh, right before when Harry's about to go to his first class of the year, um, Lockhart sort of sweeps in and asks uh, Professor Sprout, you know, would you mind if I just borrowed Harry for a second? And Professor Sprout's kind of like, you suck, but whatever. And she doesn't even get a chance to respond, really. He's just like, lovely. And then he closes the door. In yeah. Her face. So she's clearly not a fan. So we are starting to see other people not really being a huge fan of him. But um, he starts talking to Harry about, you know, um, your big entrance with the car. That was so great. I can't believe you did it. But maybe that's a bit too much. You know, you have to really pace yourself in terms of getting your fame attention. So Lockhart really feels like Harry is a narcissist like him, um, that he, you know, wants the attention that Lockhart can be a mentor to him about how to be a famous person, basically. Yeah, I think you hit on it really, really well there. He basically thinks that Harry and Ron's trip to Hogwarts in the car was just a publicity stunt and that Harry was just doing it for all the attention, which is not a completely unreasonable assumption if you've never met Harry before. But knowing him as the reader does, it it is obviously not why Harry does anything. Um, And so it makes Lockhart come off as really patronizing. Um, I also want to touch on the conversation that he has with Professor Sprout before or as Harry and the class arrive, rather, which is that Professor Sprout had been doctoring the Whomping Willow that Harry and Ron smashed up, Hmm. and Lockhart claims that he was helping her with it because he has lots of expertise in this particular field of herbology, Um, and he basically tries to put her down and build himself up at the same time by saying, you know, I was helping her with it, and, you know, she needed some of my pointers to Mm -hmm. be able to do it correctly. Um, And this sort of thing where he sort of like inserts himself into other people's areas of expertise and claims to know better than they do. Um, We'll see it over and over in this book. It's, it's like a defining character trait of his and it makes him look really stupid because obviously they know better than he does. It also makes him look really desperate for attention. Mm -hmm. And there are two other times in this chapter that we see him. So we see him interfere when Colin Creevy is asking Harry for a portrait and we see him in Defense Against the Dark Arts class. So let's start next with the portrait. Yeah, so when um, he, like we just said, you know, Colin asks Harry to take a portrait and then to sign it. Harry says no, but Lockhart is, just happens to be there. And then he is like, oh, whoa, Harry, now you're asking, giving out signed photos? I mean, I can help you with that, but this seems like too much. And so Harry just kind of bumbles into these situations where right. it, it seems like he's trying to get all these attentions and it's, funny and also very annoying for Harry that, you know, this keeps happening and Lockhart keeps seeing it because it's just reinforcing Lockhart's idea. That Harry is as narcissistic as he is. Right. And also um, Malfoy and Crabbe and Goyle had just sort of overheard Colin right before Lockhart came along and were making fun of Colin and Harry for doing that already. And so I think Lockhart in his in his own mind was basically saying, like, I'm just trying to break this up before it gets out of hand, and I'll also make Colin's day because, right. you know, he'll get a signed of picture Of course he too. wants a picture of me, too. Right. And I'm... he probably does, actually. But, you know, that's that's another thing. But he's basically trying to coach Harry and give Colin something that he wants 
and also make Malfoy go away because he can see that Malfoy is causing trouble. Mm -hmm. So it's not like he's entirely being a jerk in this chapter, but we do see like his motivations and his reasons for what he's doing are based out of this narcissistic personality that he has and this sort of like patronizing paternalistic attitude that he has toward Harry. So that's where that comes in. And then when we go to class, first of all, he gives them a quiz on himself, which is like the most narcissistic thing I can think of. <laughs> and it's basically like, what's his favorite color? What does he like like to do? And this is stuff that in theory, well, because Hermione, you know, gets it right. You, If you read his books, he inserts all these things about himself in there. Right. And so it tells you something about his writing, too. It's like he writes all these stories about his own adventures. And also he's like sneaking in these details about his own personal life that probably aren't relevant to any stories that he's telling either. But he's like, my favorite color is lilac. I would love a bottle of Ogden's old fire whiskey for Christmas. You know, things like that. That's like, why would you ever have that come up in a book about, you know, you dealing with trolls or vampires? So that's how it starts. And then when he actually gets into the um, meat of the class where he is supposed to be teaching them actually defense against the dark arts, um, he releases these creatures called Cornish pixies, which are tiny little pixie-looking, like, weird gnome-like people that can fly. And um, just releases them and says, okay, now we're gonna round them up again. And they're going crazy all around the classroom. Lockhart himself tries the spell that supposedly stuns them or whatever, stops them, and completely fails. Yeah. And it's another example of how his magic, his particular brand of magic, is, like, very flashy and seems like it would work, but actually doesn't do anything. Just sort of like how we talked about with the gnomes in the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, it actually does nothing, and he has no other ideas after that, so he just tells Harry, Ron, and Hermione to clean up the pixies after that. Yeah, because basically the bell rings or whatever, and they all leave, yeah. and then Harry, Ron, and Hermione are still there. Meanwhile, and, the pixies have trashed the classroom, yeah. and in the film version, Neville is hanging from a chandelier in the <laughs> right. middle of the classroom. <laughs> right. So the trio is left to clean it up. So the trio, again, you know, kind of knows more than the other students, which they always seem to. Yeah, the very last line of the chapter, um, Ron is the first one to question um, Lockhart's because they're sort of saying, well, if he's so good at all this stuff, then, you know, he did all these things. And Ron's like, well, he says he did. And so Ron's like, I'm not sure, you know, yeah, this I mean, doesn't make sense. He's demonstrated so up. much incompetence. If you can't even round up Cornish pixies, how can we believe that you've defeated vampires and banshees and werewolves? You right. Know? Seems wildly implausible. And also this lesson actually reminded me a little bit of Remus Lupin's lessons and Alistair mm. Moody's lessons in Goblet of Fire because it's practical. And like right, all yeah. those Defense Against the Dark Arts teachers, what they do is they have the creatures in the classroom and they tell you how to defeat them, and then mm-hmm. they show you how to defeat them by actually releasing them mm-hmm. and letting you interact with them. And Lockhart's got the same idea, except he has no idea what he's doing. So he just brings these creatures in and just lets them loose, and they just go around in a rampage. And if they were actually dangerous, that would be a problem. But since they're not that dangerous, they just destroy things. Yeah. Um, but still, you know, can't do that. And so this kind of brings me to my question where, I mean, I think basically he's so narcissistic is the answer, but... My main question is, what is Lockhart's plan here? I mean, he wanted to come, get the attention, have this position at Hogwarts, be near Harry probably. But now, what is his plan? He can't actually do anything. You know, has he just deluded himself to thinking that 
he can and that he's going to be able to teach the kids. He probably has. I mean, he's, I think in his mind, he's written so much about the the adventures of other better wizards um, accomplishing great things in the realm of defense that he probably a little bit buys into the hype about himself that he's written. And the other side of that is he probably thinks that because he knows so much about how they did those things, that he can recreate it too. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, he's not a very gifted wizard in that regard. And so, you know, it seems like his only real skill was wiping their memories and then writing about them. Right. So I don't know. I mean, we'll see how his rest of his classes go. But I think that um, it's a little bit too presumptuous to think that everyone's just going to be blinded by his charm. Although they are for quite a long time. But. Yeah, and we we mentioned here Ron's the first one to s- sort of start saying, you know, I don't buy it. Mm-hmm. But Hermione continues to be an ardent Lockhart supporter throughout the entire rest of the book, even after, well after Harry and Ron have basically fallen out with Lockhart and believe that he doesn't have any abilities. Hermione continues believing um, in Lockhart's hype. And actually, I think there's something in there about how it's all coming from books. Hermione, who mm-hmm. who relies on books for everything and gets all of her knowledge out of books, even to the point where when professors ask her questions, she will verbatim repeat the textbook to them. Right. Um, I think she almost doesn't believe that a book could be wrong. And so when, yeah. when she's read all these Lockhart books, she's like, well, they have to be true because they're yeah, books. Yeah, and all her other textbooks have, you know, served her well. Um, and I also think that you know, not later on, but especially now after her first year, you know, she does obviously revere books and learning. And I think the professors, I mean, I think she really feels like these are people that we should respect and I'm going to do my best to listen to them and, you know, prove myself. Even if she hates people like Snape, she still wants to listen to him and show him that you know, she knows how to do what he's asking. Yeah. And it's important to clarify, she definitely doesn't hate Snape. She respects him right. a great deal. She doesn't like him, but she respects him. Right. Um, but on the Lockhart front, I, I will say, I think she is charmed by him. Mm-hmm. You know, she she finds him really attractive. And I don't think it, she, like, wants to date him or anything, but she's got a schoolgirl crush on him. Yeah, and... she does. And I think it's, I, I think that that's true, but I think that there's definitely a deeper layer to it, like we were just talking yeah. about. Because I think Ron is like, yeah, you just think he's dreamy. And I think that, you know, that wears does. off after... Right, it does. But that wears off after a while. And I do think that the idea of, um, you know, his books and his credentials that she believes at the beginning mm-hmm. are are more of it for her. Yeah. And in that vein, um, I think we can basically boil down Gilderoy Lockhart. He's a confidence man, right? Mm-hmm. He basically gets into people's confidence. Um, he wipes their. He has them tell him everything about how they accomplished the things they accomplished. He wipes their memories, and then he writes a book about it so that he can gain the confidence of the public that he can do those things too. Right. And so he's basically pulling an enormous con on everybody. Um, and when I was researching this chapter for the podcast, I found that the name Gilderoy um, has a Scottish Gaelic origin in a high middle ages brigand who was roaming around Scotland. Um, and he was basically a con man and he would have these schemes where he would, um, basically either steal from people or he would have like a, a sort of mafioso esque 
way of having them give him money so that he wouldn't go back and rob them later. Um, and he was eventually uh, caught and executed. And he was given the nickname. He had he had a real name. I forget what it was. Um, but he, he was given the nickname, uh, which was anglicized to Gilderoy, um, which comes from the Scotch Gaelic uh, for red hair, because he had red hair. It's not a very inventive name. <laughs> but that, that name, Gilderoy, has stuck around um, as a reference to this, like, um, almost legendary brigand. And a brigand, for those of you who don't know, is basically just a highway robber. And I wonder whether when Rowling was picking out names for this character that she had in mind as a really narcissistic con man, whether she thought of um, this Scottish mythos at all. And she probably did because we know she thinks uh, into names a lot. And that's a name that, you know, I don't think anyone hears of except for this book. So it is pretty interesting. And his last name too, Lockhart, you know, could easily be a reference to how he's able to charm so many women. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and Gilderoy Lockhart. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially Lockhart's character and motivation, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at www.theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we talk in hushed whispers about wizarding racism and mysterious voices in the walls in Chapter 7, Mudbloods and Murmurs. I'm Madeline. And I'm David. And we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast. Knox. Knox.